Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 in your copy of God's Holy Word. And please give your attention once again to the holy, inspired, and infallible Word of God, Luke 9.23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearing. Let us pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God, as we come to the preached word, our cry is the same as Moses. Show me thy glory, O God. And we are encouraged to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ once again. Would you help your preacher to preach the word of God in such a way that the people of God might get a glimpse and a taste of the glory of our Savior? Would you do this, Father, that his glory may increase among the people of God and that our sight would be fixed on Jesus, that having kept our gaze on Jesus, we might be transformed from glory to glory, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. We pray then for the minister that the Spirit of God the spirit that anointed Christ, the spirit that inspired this text would be the one to preach through the minister. And we pray for the people of God that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ. We do this, Father, for the sake of Christ himself. And so, Father, we pray that you would glorify thy son, Jesus, that thy son also may glorify thee. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, last time we were in the chapter, we had heard Jesus say that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow after him. And we saw in that that our focus is really often in the wrong place, right? We're often thinking of denying ourselves, we're often thinking of taking up our cross, but our focus truly ought to be on Jesus himself, to follow after the God-man. That's where our focus is, and everything else works backwards. We say, once we get a sight of the glory of Christ, we say, of course, we will follow Christ. Of course, we will deny ourselves for this Savior and Lord. And we, of course, will take up our cross, dying to self. And so, then, we must have in view who this Christ is, who is worthy of dying for, right? That's what he says, that he is worth dying for who is this Christ and so Luke today 
in sort of the brilliance of how the Lord has set this text before us is to show us the glory of Christ in his transfiguration. Who is it that we truly are following? There's a revelation here of the exalted nature of the Lord that we should gladly follow into eternity. And he shows us the radiant hope of our own glory when we consider the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord here. This, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, is a very, very rich text. And it's often overlooked by us. Often we go through it very quickly. And so I hope to cover this in two sermons. This will just be the first part. Because something this glorious really requires time to breathe in our souls, to meditate even throughout a whole week on what we have seen here, that we might come back and take in more of this tremendous sight and sense of the Lord's glory. Even so, today our task is still immense, and it's to consider the exalted glory of Christ. And that's our theme. The exaltation of Christ revealed in the transfiguration. The exaltation of Christ revealed in the transfiguration. And we'll consider that under the three heads on your bulletin. The first is the kingdom's power. The second is the Christ's or Messiah's transfiguration. And third is the believer's glory. First, the kingdom's power. Now, I'm mindful that last time, time just got away from us and we couldn't consider verse 27. But it's an important verse to consider. It's a verse that often perplexes and confuses Christians. And so it requires some attention. And as I thought on it, by God's providence, I, I, I believe it actually fits rather well with our theme today. So let's understand it before we consider the transfiguration proper. Verse 27, But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And we have to ask ourselves, what is this, this sense of the kingdom of God that Jesus has in view? Uh, a sight that some of his disciples would see before their death. Now there are three possibilities here to consider. The first is to think that this might be Jesus speaking of his second coming, as in verse 26, where he speaks of uh, when the Son of Man comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Now that has to be discarded unless you take a very heretical position, which is called hyperpreterism which teaches that the second coming of Christ was in A.D. 70 with Jerusalem's destruction and that all the prophecies of Christianity have been fulfilled, including the general resurrection. But that is heresy, and it's repugnant to both Scripture and reason. Uh, it seems absurd to say that we are now living the resurrection, right? Um, and I thought on this, it seems absurd to have to deal with the hyperpreterist thesis, but it is often brought to life again and has a following even today in some quarters. But for the Orthodox, you must put this possibility away. The second possibility is Christ spoke of his transfiguration, which is the text that we are here in, in verses 28 to 36, and the theme of our sermon. And some men actually point to the flow of our text in support of the position, that the disciples saw a taste of the kingdom of God with power in Christ's transfiguration. And like I said, good men take this position. But it seems like a very odd way for Jesus to speak, right? Only eight days transpire between him saying that uh, some will still be alive and in verse 27 and here in his transfiguration. Uh, the plain sense of his words seem to indicate that a significant amount of time would pass such that some would actually not be alive to see the kingdom of God come in power. And of course, all 12 of his disciples were alive at the transfiguration. And so this possibility, while possible, does not seem to hold. The third possibility is actually informed by how Mark accounts of Christ's words in Mark 9, verse 1. He says, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God. Okay, we've seen, heard that much from Luke. But here's the phrase, come with power. Come with power. And so the third possibility here is that Jesus spoke of his ascension into glory, right? To receive his throne in power 
enthroned at God's right hand, right, in heaven. What do we read of of the ascension? In Psalm 68, Ephesians 4, when he ascended, he received gifts for men. And he sent the greatest gift of all. What is that, boys and girls? He sent with the Father, the Holy Ghost, down to earth, didn't he? In power. Father and Son sending him in power. What happens? The day of Pentecost comes when a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind filled the house where they were together and then cloven tongues like as of fire sat upon each of them. You see, the disciples, they now tasted the kingdom of God come in power themselves tasting it, right? As the, 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 the power of the Holy Ghost rested on them. And you think about what happened on that day, right? The disciples who once were squabbling over who is the greatest in the kingdom, the disciples like Peter here who once denied the Lord and ran away with fear, they are transformed and they are given power from on high. Peter who just recently rebuked the Lord for his prophecy of death, arose with power to preach Christ crucified. And 3,000 souls were converted and saved in his single sermon after Christ had ascended. The kingdom of God had truly come in power at Pentecost. And then in AD 70, the old economy, as it was Jewish, was destroyed forever when Christ from heaven sent the Romans to destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because the kingdom of God had come in power and would go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And of course, you know solemnly, one of the twelve did not live to see the kingdom of God come in power. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And so, at his ascension, the inauguration of his rule and reign from heaven, all things what? What does God say? All things now being put under his feet, right? Christ, not in his estate of humiliation, and this fits the theme of the, uh, of the uh, transfiguration, but now in his exaltation. The king in power in heaven, the king once crucified, right? Now rules and reigns, pressing all things under his feet by the spirits of power. That is what Jesus is speaking of. Even today, right? When we think of the kingdom of God, right? 2,000 years later almost. What do we read of the preaching of the word? It is done in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. First uh, Corinthians 2.4. And so the kingdom came with power and it continues with power today. So having handled that question, let's now pick up the narrative concerning the transfiguration. Verses 28 and 29. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. Now, as the Lord was in the habit of doing, he took his innermost three. Peter, James, and John. He took them up into the mountain, which we call today, regardless of its actual identification, the Mount of Transfiguration. And what was his purpose, right? We have to think on that. Why did he go up there? The Bible says what, boys and girls? To pray, right? To pray. And it was during his prayer that our Lord was transfigured or transformed. And I think, uh, it behooves us to dwell on something of what we learn about prayer by our Lord's own example. And the first thing you might note about prayer is that this has been a theme consistent in the gospel that before every major event of our Lord's ministry, our Lord was found in deep prayer, wasn't he? At his baptism, right, as he is being baptized, Luke 3 says that he was in prayer. In Luke chapter 6, when he needed wisdom in how to choose the apostles, right? He was praying. At Gethsemane, before his cross, he was fervent in prayer in Luke 22. And here in Luke chapter 9, in the same way, before his transfiguration, he was praying as well. Our Lord was a man of deep prayer. The Savior in his human nature, right, as it is human, expresses a deep dependence on God. You know, I was thinking about this, right? In a lesser man, in a fallen man, pride in his own gifts would have caused a lesser man to just sort of plunge into the work of ministry with no sense 
of the great need he has for God. But here is Jesus Christ, gifted and anointed beyond all measure, and he is found in prayer, showing that we, with much lesser gifts, are so prideful that before we embark on anything spiritual or anything, really, we are not praying. How prideful we are and how we need a Savior, a humble Savior like our Lord Jesus Christ, who is humble enough to express in the humanity He needs God. We need God for every spiritual blessing and help. We must be, we, must we be, here's the question, right? Let me put it this way. Must we be less dependent on God than Christ? By no means. Second, you see here that while Jesus often retired to pray alone, he often took his own disciples with him. You see that? In his greatest trials, really, he took Peter, James, and John with him, with him for prayer. You know, the Lord, you see this, you sense this. He desired their company, he desired their presence, and he desired their prayers. And if the Savior, again, we, we, this is all a greater to lesser argument, right? And if the Savior needed the, the saints, and I don't mean that in an impious way, he desired the saints to be with him as he prayed, Ought we not as well? And what's his promise, right? And you see this, the Lord who loves having two or three gather with him in prayer, he promises that when two or three gather in his name, he is there with them. He shows you that he has a love for gathered prayer. So what you and I ought never do is neglect praying with others. Right? He is there with us. He loves it. He taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. Not my Father. Our Father. And at Pentecost, right, you think on how they learned this lesson. Before the kingdom came with power, what were they doing? They were praying together. And then the Spirit comes down with power. But no prayer, no power. Much prayer, much power. When God's power is manifest, this is the consistent theme in the Bible, where you find God communicating to his people when they are praying, but also throughout church history. When God does a mighty work, his people are deep in prayer. And so the need of our time is not less prayer, but more prayer, much more prayer. The Spirit, as he comes to move in the church, first moves the people of God to pray. That's his first work in us, is he moves us to pray. And then he comes in power. We lament. And I know several of you do, at least in the time that I was on social media, lament the condition of the church. But how often are you found in prayer? Unified prayer with one another. That's the solution, right? That's the solution. And our weakness in prayer is also observed so often in the disciples. You know, during Christ's earthly ministry, his times of prayer wearied their flesh, didn't it? In verse 32, we read that as Jesus was praying, right, was in prayer. At some point, Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. It's almost like, again, there's nothing new under the sun. You're going to see this again in Gethsemane, right? And it seems that they were asleep as he was praying. You know this in Gethsemane. We read that he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Matthew 26, 40, right? You know, the Lord is saying we ought to be able to watch and pray for an hour even. That's not something that's beyond us. And yet we don't often, not always, I know many brethren do pray and pray fervently. But he does seem to indicate here that we ought to be able to have long seasons of prayer with him. And you think of this, right? And maybe you say, Pastor, well, maybe maybe if Jesus were here praying, right? But when you pray or when I pray with a group, uh, I am their prayers aren't, aren't very good, maybe you say that. <laughs> they are here wearied of Christ's prayer. Who has ever prayed like Christ, Right? Showing really the weakness of our flesh has nothing to do with those who are praying, but really that we are just not a very spiritual people. 
that we are often very sluggish, like Peter, James, and John. Now, it's not hopeless, praise God. This side of Pentecost, you can grow in prayer, and you must grow in prayer, and we can pray as well, right? We praise God, the Spirit has been sent in power, and we pray with the Spirit's own help, right? We are dependent on the Lord in prayer. You can grow in a love for prayer, an earnestness for prayer, a steadfastness in prayer, beloved. Peter did this. This is one of my most favorite things about Peter, right? Is He's often a picture of portrait of us, right? But he's also a picture and portrait of sanctification in the life of the, the believer. I love to read, right? If you read Peter so often in the Gospels, in some way he has failed his Lord. But then when you look maybe in the book of Acts or you look at his epistles, right, you see the Lord's work in the man. And I think on how Peter went here from wearied in prayer to 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and what? Watch unto prayer. You know, you almost hear him taking that rebuke from the Lord. What? Could you not watch and pray with me one hour? And here he is now, a repentant man, right? Who is saying, what must we all do? Watch unto prayer. See, Peter, he is a man in whom the Spirit was working. Years after Gethsemane, the rebuke is taken to heart. And so what we ought to do is not just receive the rebuke, but repent as Peter did and spend more time in prayer, beloved. And may you be earnest in united prayer yourself. Well, Jesus had prayed, and note the effect of his communication with God in verse 29. And as he prayed, right? So this is again, sort of, if you read the baptism account, it's the same kind of thing. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And so the transfiguration occurs as he prays. Now, I'm still going to be on prayer, but one thing here is his transfiguration is unique, right? He, you are not going to be transfigured literally when you pray. But here's the thing, beloved. So often our countenance does change when we're in prayer, right? We enter so often prayer with furrows on our brow and we leave it with our face alight and our, our, our weariness is removed. When we commit all things unto God as Christ did at Gethsemane, Right? We go from, as it were, that agony that he himself faced to in Psalm 34, verse 5, when looking to the Lord, we read, they looked to him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. You see, if, if, if there's a burden, if your face is weary and anxious, what, where are you going to go? Right? What has the promise from God that he might communicate rich blessings to you? to remove your burdens, to have you see the face and glory of Jesus Christ and to communicate something of it to you, to remove your burdens. They looked to him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. Do you not think this is why our Lord was so often, even as he was despised by men, found in prayer? Right? Where are you going to go? Go to the Lord in prayer. So you must see prayer as a place of great refuge, not a place, and this is where we can go wrong, not a place of ritual, but a place of refuge. You go to God in the Spirit, and you pull down all the barriers in your heart and mind by God's help. You be unreserved before the Lord, right? Reverent, but unreserved. You communicate to Him by faith your difficulties, your needs, your confusion, your hurts, your joys, your thanksgivings, and your praises. Look to him in prayer. Don't just take a list. Yes, you may take a list. I do myself. But take your heart and take your mind and take your faith. Go with faith to God in prayer and you're, you will be lightened. Your face will so often be aglow and unashamed. This is not, as the papists make it, some sort of bare obligation, Right? And now, don't get me wrong, it is an obligation. All men everywhere are obliged to pray. But to the Christian, it is a privilege. It is a mercy. It is a mercy procured by the Son of God's blood, by which He has made a way to us through a throne that is called mercy and grace. 
to help in time of need. So, with that, then, let's consider our second heading, the Christ's transfiguration. Verse 29, again, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. Boys and girls, this is what we call the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word transfiguration is not used by Luke, but Matthew and Mark do, which is where we get the word. Matthew 17, 2, for instance, Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, the Greek word there is metamorpho. That's the lemma. That's the origin. It really is the origin of our word metamorphosis, boys and girls. And that's what was in view here. Jesus... Our Savior was transformed in front of his disciples. With the other synoptics, Luke is actually very reserved here, but with the other synoptics, you have a blessed and glorious vision of what happened to Christ at that time. Matthew 17, verse 2, and was transfigured before them. And listen to this. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Mark 9.3, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white, raiment being clothing, boys and girls, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller or launderer on earth can white them. This is beyond nature, in other words. This is something supernatural. You cannot in any way perceive anything on the earth to have any bit of this glory. And his face and clothing are described here in incredible detail by the Holy Ghost. His clothing, Luke says, his raiment was white and glistering. Mark says his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Matthew going further, his raiment was white as the light. Boys and girls, consider that, children. You know, his emanating from his clothing was a pure and piercing radiance, right? Just from his clothing. What does this show us? Shows us his purity, his perfection, his radiant holiness, white as the light without spot. No fuller, right? This is beyond the power of any man to to wash or bleach or create a detergent that can make clothes so white, showing that this is the spotless lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, a righteousness without the smallest, tiniest hint of defect. This is his own righteousness. And it was said of God in Psalm 104, and you find the fulfillment here, that he covereth himself with light as with a garment. As for his face, Luke simply says, a bit of an understatement, the fashion of his countenance was altered. But Matthew wrote, his face did shine as the sun. What this was, was a dramatic change. Because prior to this, and this is where we're going to go with this, is that Jesus in his estate of humiliation, right, was very unassuming. Isaiah 53 says what of his appearance, boys and girls? Verse 2, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And yet now we have revealed his true beauty, his true holiness, a radiance unparalleled among men, dazzling in his radiance, in his righteousness, his holiness. So what must we make of these things? Why was our Lord transfigured for a while? Perhaps the best way, and I was thinking of the best way to perhaps bring the doctrine here, I think the best way is to actually think on this, children. Where was our Lord, right? Where was our Lord described this way in the New Testament? Where else do you read of Jesus with these same kinds of words? In the Revelation. You remember its first chapter. The very same John who was here as a witness, present at the transfiguration, saw the ascended Christ and wrote in Revelation 1.16, his countenance was as what? The sun shineth in his strength. This is what Matthew relayed of the transfiguration, right? His face did shine as the sun. And that's the interpretive key, friends, to understand what was happening at the transfiguration. While he was still 
yet in his estate of humiliation, right? The disciples are given a glimpse of Christ's exaltation when he would be received into his glory. Verse 32, when they were awake, they saw his glory. What did John write in the very first chapter of his gospel? The same John here, right? We beheld his glory, the glory of as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when you think of John writing that, what is he referring to? He's referring to seeing the glory of God here in the face of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. They beheld his glory, the glory that is to come. And what we find here is that Christ's human nature was not changed in substance, but was rather glorified. He is the same man. His future exaltation, his future exalted state intruded momentarily into his state of humiliation. Now, this is a temporary thing, and it had to be a temporary thing on the mountaintop. He could not stay in this glorified state. And you might ask the question, why not? Well, in his glorified state, he cannot die. He is immortal, right? But he came to die. And he must die on the cross to lay down his life for sinners, sinners like us. And then later on, he would enter into his glory. You might still ask, why do the disciples have to see this glimpse of Christ's future glory? And this is where I think it is very helpful to understand the time in which they are in. This is Christ's final year of ministry. From here on, the cross looms before him. Verse 51, we'll get to it someday. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. His descent from this mountain was to be hoisted on the cross at Jerusalem before him. In Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he titles this last portion of Christ's earthly life this, and it's very memorable, from the Mount of Transfiguration into the Valley of Humiliation and Death. And that sort of sums up what the next year will be like for the Lord Jesus Christ. A vivid description. From this point, more than ever before, he would be rejected and despised of men. Even before the transfiguration, the crowds had already thinned, hadn't they? You remember those who came at the feeding of the 5,000 left when Jesus said that he was the bread of life. And he had asked the disciples, will you also go away? So you might ask the question at the beginning or here in this last year of ministry for the Lord, is this Jesus truly the Christ? So humiliated, so rejected by men. Is this the Messiah who will come to us to rule and reign over all things? And is the Father who two years ago at his baptism still pleased with him? Right? You might ask the question, has he failed? Has he gone even, right? Is he no different than the first Adam? Right? The first Adam who failed in the garden. Has he failed to win us, his people, his righteousness, our righteousness? The transfiguration answers all these questions, beloved. As God thundered out of the glory cloud in verse 35, this is my beloved son, hear him. And he has not failed. And we see that he has not failed and, and we see his glory to come as well. We see his holiness we see what has hitherto been his unseen by human eyes perfection and righteousness. And as he was transfigured, we also see that the cross is not the end. That he would not remain in the grave and suffer corruption like all the pretend messiahs that had come before. But after all of his shame, all of his humiliation, all of the spitting on him, all of the furrows on his back, after all of his blood, after the grave would come his glory, his resurrection and ascension. Luke twenty four twenty six. these words are tied here. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
But in addition to God's own testimony of his son, we find two men come forward as witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, or Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now you might ask, why is it that God sends Moses and Elijah? Well, you might think of who they are, but not just who they are, but what they represent. You have Moses, right? The great giver of the Old Testament law. Elijah, the Old Testament prototypical prophet that all others were measured by, even John the Baptist. These represent what then? The law and the prophets. Boys and girls, that's how we speak of the entirety of the Old Testament in the scriptures. So what is the glory here for you, believer? All the laws of Moses that you are bound to keep, Moses says this one fulfills them all. Everything that I wrote of and all the prophecies of the Old Testament, Elijah says, here is he, the one that we prophesied of. Knowing so much of these men, especially Moses, right? And so he doesn't just have the testimony of scripture. He has the, the personification of the scripture in these men. And they give their voice and their testimony. Yes, this is who we were inspired to write of. And knowing so much of these men, right? The Bible devotes so much time to these men in particular. It is hard to get away from the historic nature of their meeting with the Savior in the flesh. Moses especially, right? The one who cried out to Jehovah, show me thy glory. And when, when he was shown the glory of God, he was shown at that time Jehovah's backside. But now he sees the glory of God in the face, not the back of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In a way that he can see the radiance of God peering through the face of a man and approach him. God's one mediator, the God-man, that those with faith can approach, even with comfort. You think of this, the sun is shining in its strength, and here are Two creatures, Moses and Elijah, and another two who are yet to be glorified who can still approach the Lord. That's a tremendous thing, friends, and gives you a glimpse of glory to come. And as for the prophecies then, as we think on Elijah that pointed to the Messiah, Elijah stands for the prophets and says, yes, this Jesus is the Christ. Consider 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 with care of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and what? The glory that should follow. Elijah then had searched in his earthly ministry what manner uh, of time and the spirit of Christ in him who was speaking through him did signify. And here he says, we have discovered the one, Jesus, the one who would suffer and enter into his glory that we prophesied of. And Peter, right, you tie all these things together, boys and girls, you know, the Bible is, is true and real and it's true history. Peter having written First Peter then, you wonder what part of the conversation that he had, uh, that Jesus had with Moses and Elijah entered into his thinking here, right? By the Holy Spirit's inspiration. What was it that they were saying? It's a wonderful thing to inquire of in glory to come. And so we find here that the law and the prophets agree at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is the Christ. What you must do is you must see many of the uses of it. Because if you know the use of it, it is glorious and it gives you rest. And I would, if you could, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. I'll read several of the verses, but we'll begin in verse 21. I think of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, right? They bore witness to what exactly in Romans chapter 3? The righteousness of God without the law manifest in Jesus Christ. 
All the law of Moses, right? The Ten Commandments being their summary. All the law of Moses, which screams to us that we are unrighteous, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we are liars, that we are blasphemers, that we are adulterers, that we are Sabbath breakers, and so on. That law and the prophets who took that law, saying, thus saith the Lord, convicting us of our sin, are witnesses now that we in Christ have the righteousness of God without the keeping of the law. As representatives then of all the scriptures that pointed to the coming of the Messiah as our own righteousness, we have Moses and Elijah themselves. Representatives of God to say that when texts like Jeremiah 23 verse 6 were proclaimed by the prophets, in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. This Jesus, standing and conversing with them, is the Lord our righteousness. How can you possess it? This witness is true, Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All who believe, whether you believe presently or are going to cast your faith on the Lord today, all who believe, no matter what kind of sinner you are, can have what is portrayed by Christ at his transfiguration, the spotless, pure, radiant righteousness of Christ which is signified by his clothing being so bright and so white that no launderer on earth can create and produce such a garment. Washed by his blood, you can be clothed in his righteousness. And your righteousness today, believer, is as pure as the light because he has put those garments on you. Not because you are righteous, because you are condemned according to the law, but you have the righteousness of, of God apart from the law by faith in Christ. And Moses and Elijah say, Amen. What do you have to pay to gain it? Nothing. Being justified freely by His grace. And it is yours, and it is yours forever. What a thing, believer. When you think on Moses and Elijah adding their amen. For what did Moses write? By the mouth of two or three witnesses is every matter established. In the book of Deuteronomy 17. Moses became a witness by his own law. Moses the lawgiver says Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. Believe on him. Now. They also spoke with Jesus. And the one thing that we know of their topic was they spoke of Jesus accomplishing his decease, that is, his death. And you might know this if you've been in this text before, that the underlying Greek word for decease there is actually exodus. Exodus. And so now, again, you think of how pregnant this text is with meaning, right? Moses, the first great deliverer of the very first exodus, the one out of Egypt, who brought God's people out as slaves out of Egypt into the promised land, spoke to Jesus of the greater exodus that Christ was going to accomplish by his death on the cross, which if you're in Romans 3 still, verse 25 speaks of, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. This is the great exodus. God setting forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. That is to give us who deserve his wrath, his favor and his grace instead. What were they speaking of? You think of it, right? What are you speaking of? As you think of the law and the prophets, they're speaking of Christ, the lamb of God shedding his blood on his cross. Moses, what? He once taught the people at the Passover to take the lamb's blood over their doorposts. And now he is speaking of Jesus spreading his blood on the cross to save all of his people. To be a propitiation for the sins of sinners. Romans 3.26 gives you the purpose to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How wonderful 
these things must have been for Moses to speak to Christ of at the time. To see the divine plan. To see before his own eyes the antitype of all the lambs that he wrote that men must slay to have their sins forbidden, uh, forgiven. Yet still knowing by the Spirit of God that the lamb of bulls and goats cannot truly take away the sin of the world. Not till the God-man, the lamb of God sent by God would come into the world. The great Old Testament deliverer meeting and speaking to his own. And note how they spoke of Christ's death as something Christ would accomplish, right? No man speaks of his death this way. I'm going to accomplish my death. Showing you the purpose that Jesus had in setting his face to go to Jerusalem. The meaning is plain. His death, not accidental, but to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law. And even as they spoke of his death, right? Here's the contrast. They speak of Christ dying and drawing sinners to himself. And yet at the same time, his future glory shines, showing that his death is not the end, but that this will be the risen and exalted Savior. What a contrast that must have been. As you can see, there is so much more to meditate on here. And that's why we will have to leave some of this aside for next week. But now, with the sake, for the sake of time, we'll conclude by considering our final heading, which is the believer's glory. Now, there is, believer, a connection to your own future in all of this. Note that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory in verse 30, meaning that they, like Christ, had glorified bodies at this time. Now, Elijah, remember, boys and girls, he was taken into heaven bodily in a chariot of fire and whirlwind. Uh, his body was glorified as God took it to heaven. The question, however, for many of us is, is this, how was Moses' body, right, appearing in glory? Uh, before the general resurrection, anyhow. Uh, the Bible, let me just say, does not make that clear. However, it is the case that as this is the scripture, it did happen. Now, we know that this is, first of all, you just put this thought in your mind, it's not beyond the power or will of God to do this kind of thing, right? Before the general resurrection. He could have effortlessly united Moses' body with his soul before the general resurrection. But second, and perhaps a bit intriguing, is you know that there's always been a question of what happened to Moses' body, right? By God's purpose, nobody knew its exact location, where he was buried. And you do read in the book of Jude right, of a dispute that Michael the archangel had with Satan over it, Jude 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, it may well be that the Lord in this dispute took the body of Moses to be glorified before the general resurrection so he might appear with Elijah to speak with Christ bodily. And for those who hold especially to uh, the archangel being a pre-incarnate Christ, that is also very interesting, I think. But in any case, just as with Christ's transfiguration, and as that was a preview of his exaltation, Moses and Elijah give us a preview of our glorification and our own future to come that will come anyway upon all believers. The Lord Jesus in Philippians 3.21 reminds us, will change our vile body, that means our body right now, that it may be fashioned, our body that also is very slumbers like Peter, James, and John, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That is what awaits us, believers, right? Glory, the end of our salvation. We will have a derived glory for sure, not the same as Christ's, but there is surely a reflection of it, isn't there? Our body will be fashioned, here's the thing, especially for those of us who suffer today, like unto his glorious body from its current vile state, by his almighty power whereby he can subdue all things, even our own heart unto himself. 
We will never have again in glory our outer man perish, but we will have an immortal body, a body without the taint or effects of sin upon it, a body suited for a heavenly existence, a real spiritual body that still is of flesh. Your body has eternal value to the Lord. And some of us need to remember that, right? He made it and he will redeem it for his glory. Your destiny and mine too is not, if you're a believer, is not to be a disembodied soul, but soul and body united together in glory, even as Christ's glorious transfigured body, but a derived glory from it, but yes, glorious nonetheless. This is what Jesus accomplished when he accomplished his decease. He accomplished the full and total salvation of the believers, not just soul, but their body as well. You know, you think on this, right? You think of his, his as we are united to Christ, the trajectory of his life becomes ours. We, he suffers, we suffer in body and soul. He is put into the grave, though only for three days, and he is raised again, and we will be put, our bodies, into the grave and we will be raised again at the general resurrection, even as our soul is in paradise above. And what Jesus did is he accomplished the full and total salvation in his decease of the believer's soul and body. His own soul, right, was filled with the pains of hell. His own body broken for you, the believer, so that we can be saved in both soul and body, that we might taste of his glory. But I also want to warn you that if you're not a believer, you will be resurrected too one day. But it will be what the Bible calls a resurrection of damnation. You will have a vile body because Christ has not been your propitiation. Because the wrath of God will, will, if we who believe are saved, soul and body, you who do not believe for the sake of your own sin will be damned both soul and body in everlasting torment for all of your sins that you refused to go to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and clemency. Your unbelief is bad enough. All your sins as well heaped on your head for all eternity. But John 5.29 says, believers will have a resurrection of life. And all you must do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, both soul and body. And if Moses were here today, he would say with greater, greater emphasis than he said in the Old Testament, choose life, choose Christ and be cleansed of all your evil and have the resurrection of life. Well, in this brief scene, you find so many glorious things await us in glory. Moses and Elijah converse with Christ. You hear then that your personhood will be retained Right in glory, you don't just sort of become part of a cosmic whole or something like that. You will still be who you are, yet without sin. You will recognize one another for who you are as the family of God. Moses and Elijah even conversed with Christ with familiarity, as if they knew him. You remember Moses in the days of his flesh in the Old Testament, what was said of him? And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh with unto his friend. Here's an old friend, right? Jesus Christ, the, the, the incarnated eternal son of God that he once spoke to and he speaks to again, an old friend. That's what it'll be for all of us who believe in glory. It will be grand and it will astonish us. Eternity, not just worshiping the lamb, but conversing with the lamb and conversing with his people. While we are freed from the sin that so easily ensnares us, sin that today makes us weary of the Lord in prayer, will make us one day, as sin is removed, eager to converse with him forever. May you say in glory when you go there, I have met my old friend Jesus. As you have been familiar with him today in word and in prayer, as if you are simply picking up where you left off as you have known him in the word of God and as you have known him in prayer on your knees.
right? There's another thing to go aim for. You know, that's one of the things that I often warn people about is that are you actually going to know the Jesus you meet in glory? Because if you have a Jesus that's only a figment of your imagination, I think you will be astonished and he will likely say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Know him today as a near friend, friends, so that when you come to him and he embraces you, you will know who it is you meet. The transfiguration also for our encouragement shows us that we, praise God, will be completely and totally sanctified. Sanctification seems hard today and glorification seems so far away and so impossible, but not to those who have their eye on the exalted and glorified Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with open face beholding as in a glass or mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that's where you look, right, beloved? That's where your attention ought to be. Keep His exaltation in mind where He is today. And where he sends grace and mercy by his spirit as you anticipate your own glory to come, believer. Will you believe by faith that this is what awaits you? Glory, the total eradication and elimination of sin in your heart. A day when there will be no weariness before the face of God, but only joy. Be comforted too. That the shame you presently endure, the crosses you carry, these are very temporary and why they are called light and momentary in the Bible. At the transfiguration, right? This is again our Lord's, our Lord's pattern here. Jesus received a foretaste of his exaltation. In the transfiguration, you see a foretaste of your glory to come. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Here are some of the deep things of God revealed by the Holy Spirit at the transfiguration of Christ. They drive us and encourage us to long for our Lord and for our Savior, to remind us that, yes, our Jesus is sympathetic with us too. Before his crown, before his glory came his cross, and we bear it now. And he has great sympathy on us, having experienced and tasted that himself to a greater degree than we ever will. And even as his disciples saw his end, in his suffering and humiliation, you see your end, eternal glory, in your suffering and humiliation today. Yes, the transfiguration, like this worship service, lingered for a brief moment in time, but it showed the disciples what will endure forever. That at death, they not because they accomplished it, but because Jesus would accomplish it. He would accomplish an exodus of their own out of this present evil world of sin and misery. That Jesus would take them to the paradise of God in eternal glory. And think of your own death that way, believers. Your exodus, your death is your exodus. Your deliverance out of the land of sin and misery, the land of bondage, into the blessed blessed presence of Emmanuel's land. Well, God willing, we will return to the transfiguration next week because there is much, much more to glean out of it. But for now, if able, please rise for prayer. Lord, our God, we are humbled and astonished by the things that await us in glory. Most of all, we are astonished how close we can come now to the holiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That once prophets like Isaiah said, woe unto me, for I am undone, but glorified in coming to the the God-man, we will bask in the radiance and glory of God forever. And we're thankful, Lord, that we have been given this way to God to have blessedness evermore. 
We pray if there are any here who have not come to the glorious mediator, the only mediator between God and man, that today they would call on the name of the Lord, that they would be saved, and they would take hold of this precious Redeemer, that they would receive him by faith and believe on him and have his precious garment of light become their own righteousness, and that all of their sins would be washed away by his precious blood, a blood whose detergent is so pure and so perfect that no fuller, no launderer on earth could ever make our garments as white and pure as he can. And Father, help us to behold the glory of the Lord and help us to be transformed by it. We pray for our sanctification, Lord. Make us more like our beloved Redeemer. Help us not be weary in prayer. Help us come to this throne of grace and mercy always, every day of our life. And may we enjoy the blessed presence of the Lord that when we come into his presence, we might say with a gasp of delight, I know whom it is I have believed on. And we thank you for Christ and the word of God today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.